0: Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe in Montreal. This is the 39th edition of the show. Uh, We uh, share a new episode every Tuesday. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. It is Tuesday, the 27th of April. Uh, Thanks again for being with us. Uh, The podcast this week is going to feature an interview with a longtime community organizer here in Montreal named Dolores Chu, uh, who is a founding member of the South Asian Women's Community Center, um, has been a professor in various institutions in the city, uh, including at the Simon de Beauvoir Institute uh, at Concordia University. Uh, Dolores has been uh, very involved in many social movements over the um, decades here in the city, uh, and is also on the board of the Fédération de Femmes de Québec, the Québec Women's Federation. Um, I was in touch with Dolores um, recently because India Civil Watch, which is a global network of activists uh, tracking uh, the current political crisis in India, Uh, worked on an important statement uh, to draw attention to the ways that the current crisis around the pandemic in India is connected to uh, broader systemic issues of the nationalist right-wing extreme government of the BJP. Um, I think that often when we um, hear about the situation in India on mainstream media, news reports, um, talking about short reports, um, we often don't see or have the time, let's say, to hear about the reasons or the connections between, for example, the current uh, lack of capacities to support poor and working people who are impacted by the pandemic with the broader neoliberal economics of the current right-wing government, of the BJP Um, to broader attacks on the fundamental character of the Indian state uh, as a progressive post-colonial country uh, in terms of its constitution. And I think that that is maybe not really a focal point in terms of uh, discourse around India today. And I think the work of Dolores Chu and many others in the diaspora uh, in Montreal, but also around the world through this project, India Civil Watch, I think ties a lot of these issues together in an important way and in a way that we should be listening to. So, this is a conversation with Dolores Chu here on Free City Radio. I'm joined by Dolores Chu, uh, who is a founding member of the South Asian Women's Community Center uh, here in Montreal as a professor, and also has been involved recently in a joint statement between CIRAS. Uh, It's a local uh, organization uh, in support of social movements um, for social justice and economic justice in South Asia, and also India Civil Watch uh, regarding not only the uh, farmers movement in India, but the general uh, political crisis in India under the BJP. So uh, we're going to be speaking with that today, but I'll just first say hi, Dolores, and and thank you.
1: Hi, Stefan, and thank you always for... You know, giving a a space for these issues and topics and perspectives that unfortunately we don't get to hear as much about as we should.
0: Yeah. And I mean, on that point, Dolores, uh, thank you, first of all, for sending that statement. Um, I think that, you know, there is perhaps a general notion that there are protests right now in India. There's the crisis of the pandemic um, and also the farmers movement. Um, Last year, there were headlines about the so-called citizenship law in quotations um, that uh, was an attack on the rights of um, Muslim people living in India and communities more generally. Um, I guess just to try to tie some of these things together, um, can you maybe uh, share with us sort of um, the idea that there is a crisis in India in relation to the BJP government uh, that maybe is not, as you as you mentioned, as understood or systemically understood in the mainstream narrative today.
1: Yeah, uh, de- definitely, there are so many uh, connections that can be made, and you know, as we're speaking today, the the news coming out of India about the rate of spread of of COVID, it, mm-hmm. it's a calamity. Everybody, doctors, public, just saying, it is a calamity. And so, in a way, it brings further um, uh, sort of uh, clarity to mm-hmm. what many of us have been saying for a while. And, you know, going back to 2002 and what happened in Gujarat, we can see this really as a continuum. And it's not us sort of being alarmist or trying to like grab any possibility to diss the BJP, but there is this pattern of um, organizing and um, policies that are single-mindedly focused on the seizure of state power and making India a Hindu nation, Hindutva, and doing what whatever it takes. In parallel with that, complete disregard for the population of India. So whether the policies are going to result in uh, killings lynchings, murder, with demonetization So many people lost their lives. Most recently with, with COVID, we just see the total collapse. Uh, and like we've noticed in many other parts of the world, in many societies, what the COVID crisis has done is reveal pre-existing systemic and structural inequalities. And so um, with what happened with the farmers, you know, and the Indian government saying, oh, it's just those farmers and they're just stuck in their old ways and we want to modernize uh, the way economic transactions happen in farming and it's going to actually help the farmers and they'll become like individual producers and they can negotiate the whole neoliberal context. But there've been many people who've lapped this up and said, oh, like, you know, it's not a problem. It's just those farmers. so that way that they've had of operating by just putting out a narrative that um, that supports their position, irrespective of what's on the ground. So with the farmers, mm-hmm. we've seen that and the farmers, you know, all power to them have been forcibly resisting because they said it's a matter of life and death. Now we come to the current COVID crisis in India, mm-hmm. and we're seeing this on a much larger scale, where the callousness of the government is totally, um, you know, open for everyone to see.
0: Mm. Well, you meant. Thank you for breaking all that down, Dolores. Um, you mentioned Gujarat, um, and I think that um, maybe people don't know what. Some, I mean, some people listening might not understand the reference, and and you mentioned the loss of human life. I think often, you know, um, if we hear a CBC reporting, let's say on India and the BJP, uh, not that there's that much, but when there is um, that direct link between BJP nationalist policy and not just human rights violations but killings, mm-hmm. is not often made. So, mm-hmm. if you if you could maybe just underline that a bit, like the profound state driven violence. I mean, it was at a state level for first in Gujarat with Modi's role there, but, and now this has is, is gone across the Indian context.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for, for uh, people who will listen to this who are not as familiar because Gujarat was 2002, so it's uh, quite a while ago now. Um, at that time, uh, Narendra Modi, who's the current prime minister of India was the chief minister of the state of of Gujarat and at the end of February and into March of 2002, uh, there were a series of events that resulted in organized uh, killing, which many of us uh, based on the UN Convention on Genocide um, have identified as genocide. Others are a little reticent to use that word, they will use pogrom, but however you want to uh, define it directed killing uh, of uh, Muslims in the state of of Gujarat, okay? the the government uh, claims that it was a retaliation for a train that burned, and the train was set alight by Muslim miscreants, etc. There's enough evidence to disprove that. But whatever it is, subsequent evidence does show government complicity, and in fact, uh, government ministers who were in the control room with people like Modi at the time this was unraveling, who came out and said, we have evidence. We were there when the government actually told the police, do not go out and stop this. They were bumped off. So there were a series of assassinations that that happened. Uh, Very diligent uh, police officials were were transferred and Mr. Modi and his uh, able Uh, Lieutenant, uh, Amit Shah, uh, sort of emerged from all of that sort of like Teflon dons, and they have continued marching on with their agenda, using uh, a kind of uh, rhetoric that fed into sort of the Muslim terrorist Islamophobia. Uh, They didn't invent it, but they definitely uh, used it. And created a a narrative that sort of put them as sort of saviors of the state of of Gujarat um, along with other economic policies. In fact, they proudly started talking about the Gujarat model of development, which many of us sort of said neoliberalism and genocide, that's the Gujarat model of development. Mm -hmm. And, but as as we know with, um, you know, power differentials and hegemonic control of media, and uh, you know, multi uh, corporates in India and huge um, capitalist billionaires uh, supporting Modi and his uh, his party, uh, they were able to kind of uh, get out on the airwaves till they reached Delhi and seized uh, state power. And again, I'm mean, encapsulating, you know. Decades of history. One can go back to the late 19th, early 20th century, and the formation of these Hindu ultra ethno-nationalist organizations that have worked consistently at the grassroots, and one cannot deny that uh, doing basic education, quote unquote, development work, and building um, uh, a, a sort of of, of base, right? Uh, but at the top, the seizure of state power to convert India into a Hindu nation has always been their uh, agenda. And um, they've been able to, again, as a result of the lack of a uh, unified political opposition, fractured political opposition, uh, uh, etc. And again, there are m- multiple reasons for all this and I'm trying to do it very quickly. Yeah. But going back to 2002 Gujarat, we see the, the start of this. And many of us said Gujarat is the laboratory And Gujarat is the blueprint. And this is now going to be expanded to India if we do not stop what is happening in Gujarat in its tracks. Um, Unfortunately, of course, dedicated activists, human rights uh, uh, lawyers, some cases did come before the courts. There were some convictions, but the people at the top were the ones who always kind of Uh, escaped. And there was series of assassinations and intimidation, uh, et cetera, that made it very, very difficult to get justice um, on a wider wider scale. And then subsequent to that, they've used other labels like urban Naxals and Maoists, uh, sort of denouncing everybody. And um, people who resisted had things like, you know, income tax investigation. So they created this climate where any kind of opposition was quelled or threatened to the point where very recently, you know, young environmental activists have been arrested and detained. So this chilly climate has spread throughout the
0: country. Thanks for highlighting all that context. I mean, just quickly, The connection between Gujarat in two thousand two and the and the quote unquote citizenship law today.
1: Yeah, so like I said, many of us said Gujarat is the laboratory and and the blueprint. And so once um, the party that Narendra Modi is part of, the Bharatiya Janta Party or the BJP, became the national government of India, they were able to move ahead with um, the majority they were able to muster in Parliament. So they might not have had overall a parliamentary majority, but they were able to get other MPs who were not part of their party on side, Mm -hmm. and they passed this, this law. Now, to be fair to the BJP, it's actually a previous Congress government that first introduced this idea of uh, some kind of curtailment of citizenship because in the Northeast part of India where the border is very porous with Bangladesh, even before uh, even before the emergence of Bangladesh, there's always been migration from East Pakistan or Bangladesh eventually into parts of states like Assam. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people in Assam, the ethnic majority are Ahom, And uh, historically, even under British colonialism, uh, people of the Bengali ethnicity were very um, widely employed in the civil service. And so you had Bengalis all over the subcontinent. You had a lot of Bengalis in Assam. And uh, the Ahom people have said, like, we've been swamped, and Assam for the Assamese, you know. Uh, and then when you had people of Bengali ethnicity coming from Bangladesh, there it was like, okay, these are not even Indian citizens. And uh, but now there have been people living there for generations, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, they might have originally come from Bangladesh, but they've been there for so many generations. They've mm-hmm. invested, they've contributed, just like we see with with migrants uh, around around the world and issues of, of mm-hmm. justice. And many of these populations are actually very, very poor. So to conciliate with the very vocal and strident movement in Assam, a previous Congress government kind of had an entente where they said, you know, eventually we're going to have this registration and people who cannot um, prove that they have been citizens of India and their forefathers will get pushed out of India. Right. But that was sort of there. It was never implemented. What the BJP did was implemented. So yes, as the implementers, they, they bear a lot of blame, but Mm -hmm. it was already there. And in fact uh, you know, we have to recognize that uh, you know, Killings of minority populations um, have happened when other governments have been in power, uh, you know, uh, mass killings of Muslims, uh, uh, mass killings of Sikhs. This is a time when the Congress government is in power. So in, in some ways, uh, the BJP are not the only people to blame, but they have now been able to do it in a very consistent, organized ideological way. And I think that's what makes them different. Their ideology is a commitment to uh, Hindutva. And so coming back to your question about how does Gujarat in 2002 connect with uh, the the Citizenship Amendment Act and then following that the National Mm
0: -hmm. Registry
1: of Citizenship in 2019, Mm -hmm. it's a continuum of their idea of cleansing India of Muslims. And if Muslims continue to live there, they have to know their place, which is at the bottom of the boot heel of the true Indian, that they will live there on sufferance, always vulnerable, always afraid to raise their voices and heads because they will get slapped down and killed. And so know your place.
0: So uh, I... Thanks for outlining all that, Dolores. I really um, appreciate that you mentioned um, the ways that previous governments have been also invested in uh, laws and also policies that are um, part of this, this historic process of systemic marginalization. Um, it points to this like broader question uh, about the critical importance of the political situation today in India for the world. And I guess it'll just take a minute here to say, um, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about sort of the the preamble to the Indian constitution and and how it really articulates a very, very different vision for um, what we're seeing today, of course, under the BJP, but also the importance of that document in regards to speaking to uh, a totally different worldview. I mean, about equality and um, you know a post-colonial sort of future of of also a nation rooted in a respect for diversity. Um, obviously, under Congress governments, there has been some sort of relationship between major like trade unions or farmers groups, um, and there's been some sort of negotiation. It seems under the BJP that a lot of that is just being shut down uh, in favor of total right-wing policies, but. The question is, um, in this sort of context, can you speak about why the social movements in India—not the governments of the past or the Congress—but like that social movement process is important for world politics, right? Because we can't just identify this moment in isolation, right? That it speaks to all these histories, you know. And you know, I think about other contexts, right? Um, you know, in the mainstream discourse, you know, other political contexts, say, for example, um, Brazil, you know, and um, the current extreme right government as compared to the Workers' Party, which, of course, had its issues, but there was a negotiation with social movements, right? Um, Yeah, I'm just wondering if you could speak to the importance of recognizing these processes of like, social movement organizing in the context of India as important um, within the complexity of the fact that, you know, there has been a general right-wing shift and why that's important for world politics?
1: Right, yeah. So uh, definitely the the Constitution of India is a very forward-looking document and some of the people involved in writing it, as you know, uh, Dr. Ambedkar, who... Uh, came from the resistance to, to caste, etc. So it's um, it's it's an amazing uh, document. Uh, and subsequent to the, the adoption of the Constitution in the decades since 1947, there have continued to be, as you say, people's movements. In fact, there's a broad coalition, the NAPM, the National Alliance of People's Movements. And uh, they have been working for for many, many years. In fact, um, taking what is there in the constitution and moving it forward. So Mm -hmm. uh, what was promised in the constitution, updating it. So uh, prior to the BJP taking uh, power, uh, there were several national alliance governments again. So the Congress uh, groups on on the left, et cetera. Mm And the people involved in the National Alliance of People's movements were able to push forward. For example, the Forest Rights
0: Act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so
1: indigenous people who depend on forest uh, produce and sort of making sure that the forest contractors weren't marginalizing them so that's just one example of progressive legislation that that has been passed um, relatively more recently with the coalition of political groups not necessarily all on on the left at, at all but you know the kind of liberal um, uh, perspective that that we that we see. So that has that has been happening, and some of the groups today that are opposed to the BJP in earlier iterations were allied. So again, there's a lot of horse trading that goes on, as we know. I think what for many of us has become very very clear is that the sort of idea of a liberal democratic model, which was the post-colonial model for India with some, you know, taking into account uh, certain uh, conditions on the, on the ground, but essentially a liberal democratic model can only take you thus far. And as we can see around the world that the institutions of state, even though you try to have these checks and balances between mm-hmm. legislature, le, uh, legislature, executive and judiciary, yeah. uh, they can be captured. And so what we see are like, you know, previously, at least there was the Supreme Court of India, like the final arbiter. And you could go there and you had a very proactive sort of judiciary. And many people were critical. They're saying it's great, but it shouldn't be up to the judiciary to do it. Now we've seen, um, you know, judges who are just, you know, letting, you know, writing things like, yes, you know, this temple can be built and people are in shock or very blatant, misogynist, casteist positions by these judges. So I, I think what it is also shown is what, you know, people on the left have said for a long time, that this kind of democracy mm-hmm. uh, can only take you this far. And if you want to have real equality, you have to have uh, a, a, different, a different model.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So extending from that, like in this current moment, just as a, you know, somebody who's, you know, Dolores you've been um, involved in so many um, political campaigns in support of social movements in India, but also more generally in solidarity with movements all over the world and also social justice struggles locally. In these types of moments, I'm just wondering if, if, if you have any reflections on the importance of activists decentering um sort of like g7 frameworks for understanding world politics and and i guess what i mean by that is like centering the importance of you know what's happening in india or centering the importance of you know what's happening in south africa today or in brazil these are like three i think extremely important examples Mm -hmm. um that speak to the power of social movements, but also like the profound challenges of this political moment. I don't want to get into all the specifics, but if, if you see where I'm, I'm coming from.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, again, like if, if we take India, one of the, the developments that's given many of us a lot of hope is the, 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 the current young generation who have been you know, taking leadership roles in Challenging the BJP government in, um, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, sustainable models, uh, environment um, uh, in in the farmers, in the farmers resistance, you know, the amazing work that young people are doing on the ground to to document, to write, to spread information. It's really, really uh, amazing and and hopeful. And I know like talking about India and South Africa in the last couple of decades there's been quite a lot of movement intellectuals moving and meeting and talking uh and I'm, I'm not as aware about social movement connections possibly there there are and you might know more about this Brazil I I don't I don't know but definitely we look at Brazil and we look at the government there as sort of mirroring a lot of what's going on in India
0: that's why I mention it yeah
1: yeah yeah but even though I seem to be sort of critical of the liberal democratic model, the liberal democratic model provided a framework within which certain things. So you could bring legislative change if you had a majority in parliament supporting it, uh, with the, the current kind of organization. And again, it speaks more to my ignorance possibly than the reality on the ground, the sort of, uh, connections that can be made nationally. We're seeing this with the farmers' movements, that Mm -hmm. farmers' unions across the country are very unified. Mm -hmm. But for example, uh, young people who might be involved in a very local level where they are in a particular state with um, uh, sustainable uh, development, doing excellent work, how does it translate to a national scale where you have a country... With a billion uh, people and so the challenges
0: mm-hmm.
1: of organizing mm-hmm. of course again you know with, the, with WhatsApp and social media, certain kinds of connections can be made today that weren't possible mm-hmm. uh, before and it's harder to shut. So there are wonderful things happening. Uh, I feel that they have to be translated to a national scale in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we are still talking about a nation state and and a nation state that has you know repressive uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. possibilities that that are there that they can whip out. Um, mm-hmm. So recently, for example, in the state of West Bengal, mm-hmm. there's uh, a local statewide election happening, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the BJP have been very very active and very visible. They've poured a lot of money. But what has happened is a lot of young people have taken out a no to BJP. Mm. We're not telling you who to vote for. Mm. Just don't vote for the BJP. Mm. And they've got a lot of visibility using, Mm. you know, very, people are saying, where's the money coming from? They say, "We, we don't have money. We just get a megaphone and we go out on the street, right? And we use all the social media platforms that we can. But very recently, um, India has an army and it has uh, local police, but it also has this centrally controlled um, military organs, the paramilitary. So in the northern state, northern part of the state of West Bengal, uh, one of these, the Central Reserve Police Force, opened fire on a group of people who were going to the ballot box. And these were poor Muslim people, and they were shot in the back. So even though uh, the the claim might be that they were dangerous and they were threatening the police, very clearly these were executions to intimidate the local population because that has standardly been used, not just by the BJP. You would have various political parties with their goons and hoodlums on the ground going to neighborhoods saying, you know, don't go out and vote today because we're going to come back and get you, okay? terrorizing, right? And this has been done by by uh, some of the left forces as well. So again, we, we can't say, but it's a, 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 it's a style. So all this to say, organizing has so many uh, challenges. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and so there's amazing work being done. Mm-hmm. But when you have political parties that use the force of the state, uh, what are you going to do? We have the case of, you know, all these uh, civil libertarians and lawyers, you know, who've been in jail now for more than two years, you know, charged with, and we've been getting proof now uh, that things were planted on computers, et cetera, as urban nuxels and pages and pages of documentation which have to be dealt with and they're spurious, but these, um, these defenders of the people are now in jail. Mm-hmm. So uh, the challenges are great mm-hmm. and um, a kind of broader organizational structure. So I'm just sort of
0: thinking aloud here, Stefan. Uh, well, I guess, thank you so much, Dolores, um, for outlining all that. I guess, um, you know, one one point that uh, comes to my mind is just the fact that um, there's a very uh, vibrant uh, activism and social movement uh, that's happening in India on various levels. I mean, you mentioned the media projects around the farmer's strike. There's the Trolley Times, of course, uh, many other initiatives um, and um, just the importance of social movements, you know, and we're speaking a bit more globally, but in many cases where we see these populist right wing fascist oriented governments, there are social movements that do span generations that are standing up in, in many different contexts. So that's important to see. Um, India Civil Watch has published a statement on all all a lot of the issues we've been talking about, about the BJP government. So I'd encourage people to check that out. We'll share a link. And um, Dolores Chu, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today.
1: Thank you, Stefan, always. Thank you.
0: That was a conversation with Dolores Chu, uh, who is a founding member of the South Asian Women's Community Centre, is a professor, um, has taught in many institutions, uh, including the Simon de Beauvoir Institute at Concordia University here in Montreal. Uh, Dolores also works with the Fédération de Femmes de Québec, the Quebec Women's Federation, uh, and co-authored a statement by India Civil Watch International around the current political crisis in India under the extreme right government of the BJP. Thank you so much to Dolores for taking the time to join Free City Radio today. This has been the 39th edition of the weekly show. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Um, if you like what you're hearing, please recommend this podcast to a friend. Uh, just let them know about it. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can find our archives on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash radio. If you want to reach me about anything, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. Also, I'm on Twitter at spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And uh, we'll be back next week. Um to finish the broad- broadcast, I'm going to play a piece of music uh, that was released by the label Constellation Tatsu in California. This is a piece by Eco Village. Um, thank you so much for uh, listening, and thank you again to Dolores Chu for being on the show this week. Um, I'd really encourage people to check out the work of India's Civil Watch. Uh, they have an international uh, effort going on that I think is very, very important. Uh, Thanks again for listening. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal, and I'll see you next Tuesday.